0: Hello friends, have you ever wondered why uh, your sanctification process, your becoming like Jesus, uh, progresses so painfully slow? Or do you ever wonder why your spouse's sanctification (laughs) progresses so painfully slow? (laughs) I heard an amen, I think. (laughs) Seems like we take three steps forward and two steps back in our sanctification, doesn't it? Seems like we're always struggling to see progress. It's like watching grass grow at times. I would think that we could accomplish so much more for Christ that we could be such a more great benefit to one another if... We had instantaneous spiritual maturity when we came to Christ, when we just, we prayed that sinner's prayer, when we were converted by the Holy Spirit, we open our eyes and voila, there we are, the Apostle Paul, just like that. But we scrap on, struggling to see things from God's perspective and hence struggle to glorify Him as we should, Struggle to be of encouragement and benefit to those in our lives as we should. Our vision remains blurred by our own thinking, our own experience, and the effects of sin in us and around us cause us to struggle with this process. This slow and arduous process is daunting and, if we're not careful, can rob us of God's intended joy is intended contentment and satisfaction um, from knowing who Christ is and growing in him. We seem to need constant reminders of God's purposes and how we fit into those purposes. Um, we are told of these things in scripture, we read of them in books, but it seems that we need perpetual and frequent lessons in order to grasp these things as we should. Well, I want you to take heart because the 12 apostles were just like us. They, they needed Jesus to continually remind them of God's purposes, God's plans. He had to teach and reteach over and over again the truths that he wanted them to understand before they finally got them. Our text today reminds us of some very important spiritual truths that we need to understand, that you need to understand, and not just understand, but apply. When we begin to understand who God is and how he works in people, then we will gain much joy, much contentment, much satisfaction, all things that we ought to be experiencing as Christians anyways. So if you're lacking joy, contentment, satisfaction in your walk with Christ, today might be a good day to pay special attention, especially if you're frustrated by the pace at which you're growing in Christ and wondering if you'll ever become that person that you know God wants you to be. One of the most important things that we can know about God is that he is a God of love. That's one of the primary things. You, you can't miss this as you read through the Gospels, as you read through the epistles, even as you scan the Old Testament, seeing that God is a God of love. Uh, our understanding of this particular aspect of God and his character opens up a view of our own lives and a view of the world around us that's life altering. If you don't see God as a loving God, then your perspective of life changes dramatically. If you see him as an ogre, or as a killjoy, or fill in the blank view of God, other than a God of love, you do not experience the things that I'm promising you will, if you understand and apply the text today. Joy, contentment, satisfaction. Unfortunately, our perspective on the love of God can depend on whether or not we think he has done things the way that he should. And, of course, we're a judge of that, right? <laughs> but a biblical and clear understanding of his loving character changes everything. The process of sanctification, that is, becoming like Jesus, although painfully slow, is part of God's plan to bring about his glory and our joy. The process itself So instead of becoming frustrated by the snail's pace of our spiritual growth, we'll learn that it is actually evidence of his love for us and a source of contentment and joy. There's the promise from me to you about the text today. I hope you'll listen, pay special attention, maybe even take notes. By the way, there's a page of notes for you to take on the back of your bulletin. So we're learning about here in the text today about the process by which God changes us into Christ-likeness. That's called sanctification. And the way he did it here with his disciples is, you know, informative. Um, Because the first thing we see in the text is Jesus teaches these folks about the fact that he's a loving God, that God is a loving God. And so let's look at verses 1 through 10 of Mark 8, and I've titled this God's Great Love. The goal of the Christian life is to become like Jesus, right? This is what Romans 8 says, and Paul tells this to the the Thessalonian church also. He, we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. In other words, we're going to become like Jesus one way or another in the Christian life. Paul said, it is God's will that you be sanctified to the Thessalonians. Uh, One of the things that Jesus knows will accomplish that is to have his love for people. The way that you and I are going to be sanctified is when we treat one another with the love of Christ. That will help us become more like him. We are God's instruments in each other's lives to bring about this transformation that Jesus desires in each of us. Jesus wanted his 12 disciples to understand God's great love for people, not just Jewish people, mind you, all people. Remember that Mark has recorded that Jesus took his 12 disciples on a Gentile ministry trip, remember? Started back at the beginning of chapter seven um, they went to Tyre, and he healed a Syrophoenician woman's daughter who was demon-possessed. Then they went north to Sidon, and then down to the Decapolis on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, all Gentile regions, all to engage Gentiles. That is the location of the story today. It's the location of the miracle of feeding the 4,000. So we know obviously that, that God loves Jews, right? This is, we've, you can't not know that if you start in Genesis chapter one, all the way through the, the table of, of, you know, different people groups in Genesis 11, his choosing of Abraham, and so forth. He loves the Jews. They are called his people, the Israelites. And so that's all over the Old Testament. Paul in the New Testament says that the Jewish people have had tremendous advantages because of God's love for them. And so it's not hard to see that God loves Jews. In the book of Mark, we even see it. He, back in chapter 6, he fed 5,000 Jews food. Remember, they were hungry, and so he fed them very similar to this same story that we're reading today. But it's it's clear to see that that God loves the Jew. But starting in this particular section, we take note that he also loves the Gentile. He's in Gentile territory when he feeds these 4,000 people. They're not Jews, they're Gentiles. Um, he, He needed to repeat this lesson of God's love for all people here in Mark 8, even though he had already fed Jewish people in Mark 6, here he's feeding Gentile people. The Jews had a hard time grasping the truth that God actually would love non-Jews. God actually loves Gentiles, they would think to themselves. But it's sprinkled all over the Old Testament. It's all over the New Testament. And you'll notice, I want you to look at your your text in front of you, that when Jesus heals the, the Jew, he says they were seated on green lush grass. When he fed the Gentiles here, they're just seated on dry ground. Did you take note of that? When Jesus fed the 5,000 in Mark six, he demonstrated God's love by feeding Jewish people. In that context, he mentioned that he cared for people. And one of the things that people struggle with is this thing called hunger. And so when they are hungry, he feeds them here in the Gospel of Mark. And then in verse 2 of chapter 8, where we are today, he says, I have compassion on the crowd. Why? Because they're hungry, physically hungry. And so he feeds them. And this is, this is so obvious, it barely needs to be mentioned, except that Jesus wants them and you to know something about the love of God. He loves all people, Jews and Gentiles, white and black, rich and poor, Etc., etc. God loves people. And one of the ways God demonstrates his love for people is by providing for them. In this case, providing food. Some commentators suggest that the question asked by the disciples in verse 4, you see the question the disciples asked Jesus in verse 4? He says this, I mean that they said this: how can one feed these people bread here in this desolate place? They weren't that stupid. They knew that Jesus could pull this off. He had just done it a few months earlier with the Jewish folks. The commentators suggest that they're asking Jesus, you're not going to feed Gentiles, are you? Wait a minute. Are you trying to suggest that Gentile and Jews are equally loved by God? That's exactly what Jesus was communicating to these people. These 12. If this is an accurate interpretation, like the skeptical, prideful question from the the 12, it would support the truth that Jesus is communicating this very fact. He loves Gentiles too. All people. And we need to keep in mind, after all, that Jesus is training his apostles (laughs) His messengers, after he's gone, these are the ones who will represent Christ to the world. If anybody had to get this truth about God, that he loves all people, it's these 12 guys. And of course, we need to learn it also. <clears throat> and we'll, we see here in verse 8 that when he provided for them, what happened? Satisfaction. Whenever God determines to provide for anyone, it results in satisfaction, satisfaction. Remember last week we ended our sermon with Jesus does all things well? We started it and ended it with Jesus does all things well. How well would it have been if half the crowd would have gone away hungry? Eh, you're at the end of the line, man. Sorry. No, that wouldn't have been a well demonstration of the work of Christ. They left satisfied. Let me tell you something else here, which is the point of the story. He sanctifies well also. He not only feeds well, he sanctifies well. Keep in mind the point of this story. It's not feeding 4,000 people. It's sanctifying the 12. So what we have here is a clear picture of God's love for all people, particularly taught to the 12 and to you and me, because we are disciples of the apostles, are we not? This is what the New Testament is full of, the disciples writing, the apostles writing. But now let's look at where we see this this lesson of sanctification come to the forefront. And that is in verses 11 through 26, mankind's great blindness. Even though Jesus was good, kind, winsome, helpful, miraculous, his message was still rejected by the majority. That, that stuns us, but for not, not for long, because we, we know ourselves. Verse 11, verse 11 here, it seems like it's a drastic or abrupt change to the subject. He's talking about feeding 4,000. All of a sudden, he brings in the Pharisees, Mark does, and tells us that they began to argue with Jesus, asking him to show a sign from heaven. That he had just fed 4,000 maybe? Um, I'm not sure, but I I think that there's more to it than that. Just a sign. It's a sign from heaven. Jews believed that um, miracles could be fake or faked like they were in the book of Exodus from the magicians. And they could only be faked on earth, though, on the ground itself. Because this is the kingdom and the power of the enemy the earth, so a sign from heaven would be above the earth, in the skies, for example. They were asking for a supernatural sign from the skies. They certainly saw Jesus feed the 4,000, they weren't questioning that, they were asking for a different kind of a sign. A sign that couldn't be misinterpreted as as from Satan, only from God, and and of course, uh, they may or may not have known that he calmed the wind which would have been a sign in the heavens. It had to be off the ground, remember. But there were those throughout Jesus' ministry that rejected his message, his person. And before we get too condemning with these Pharisees or these disciples, we always need to keep in mind our own circumstances. Everybody born is born spiritually blind, are they not? Are we not? Yes. Yes. We, we, at one point, we come to the understanding of God's love for us, of God's goodness, of Christ's sacrifice, and the Holy Spirit transforms our heart to understand so that we can embrace him. We're all born like that. And through God's grace, some of us embrace Jesus Christ by grace, through faith. So this is where we come to verse 11. Mark wants us to see that there are those who have hard-hearted unbelief, the Pharisees. The hard-heartedness of the Jewish leaders greatly disturbed Jesus. He sighed, do you see that? He sighed in 734 out of compassion for the deaf man and the effects of sin on mankind, but he sighed here again in a greater way, the text indicates uh, in verse 12, in, in amazement and in sorrow at the hard hearts of the religious leaders of the Jews. This was where this sigh came from. It seems that their blindness was willful, and it broke Jesus' heart. He sighed. This is the same reason he wept over Jerusalem. This is an amazing fact. We have people who are exposed to the actual physical presence of the Son of God, doing miracle after miracle, and they reject him and his message. Jesus rejected their request, of course, for more signs. It says, after he sighed deeply, he asked them, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. I'm not going to do it. You've seen enough. If you don't believe by now, you'll never believe. And in the Matthew's version of this story, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. And what's the sign of Jonah? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. That's the only sign that they were going to see from here on out. And of course, that didn't convince them either. So he rejected, Jesus did, rejected their request for more signs with a rebuke. Um, and it's a scary rebuke. Not only did he say, I'm not going to show you another sign, what did he do there at the end? Verse 13, it's a devastating sign. He left them. He turned his back on them, got in the boat and left and said, I'm done with you. You never want to hear that from God, by the way. (laughs) I'm done with you. This is after repeated hard-heartedness. Um, he left them. You remember in John 13, when John recorded the conditions when Judas left the Last Supper, you remember that? You remember what John said after he said and Judas left? He said, and it was night. Why add that little point? Why here would Mark say these things? to communicate a powerful spiritual truth, the conditions of man's heart. It is dark and without hope. Friends, this wasn't just a, a temporary departure. It was a sign that he was done, done with them. But now the story turns interesting. If it's not interesting enough for you already, this, I think, will do the trick. And it's found in verses 14 through 26. Hard-hearted belief. Have you ever heard it mentioned like that? We know of hard-hearted unbelief. We see it all over the Gospels with the the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious rulers of the day. Hard-hearted unbelief is easy to understand. But here Mark describes hard-hearted belief. This should get our attention. Because we sit here in a room full of people declaring that they believe. Even though a large majority of Jews, including the religious leaders, did not embrace Jesus or his gospel message, there were a few who did, and the 12 were in that small group. These were true followers of Christ. They loved Jesus and his message. They believed that he was who he claimed to be. They didn't fully understand all of it or the implications of it, but they genuinely loved him and wanted to follow him and obey him just like you and I do. This describes us, right? We love Jesus. We want to follow and obey him just like these guys. But his 12 disciples, just like us, were born spiritually blind and they were converted by the Holy Spirit. And even though the disciples embraced Jesus, they still possessed a sinful heart, just like we do sitting here this morning. This meant that they failed to understand some of Jesus' teaching and lived by them, just like we fail to understand Jesus' teaching and live by them. Their spiritual growth was painfully slow, and I expect it disheartened them as well. What you need to see here, first of all, is that genuine believers generally are slow learners. We are slow learners. We have a hard time grasping spiritual truth, even though we've been transformed by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit's power. And like I said, wouldn't it be nice if you woke up this morning totally spiritually mature? Hasn't happened to me yet. I think the only time I'm going to wake up totally spiritually mature is when I see Jesus face to face. I'll wake up in glory and go, oh. So after the argument with the religious leaders in verses 11 through 13 that exposed their hard hearts, Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples and told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. To us, this seems like an easy connection, right? But we know the disciples started debating, we had seven baskets left over, why didn't we bring more bread? What did we do with all that bread? Peter, you were the guy. You were supposed to bring the bread. That's, this is how their conversation was going. And of course, we know Jesus was speaking not of bread or of yeast, But we know what yeast does with bread, right? You put it in the dough, and it permeates the dough and makes it rise, and voila, you have bread. So Jesus used this example to teach them something. It's really a lesson on negative negative spiritual influences. The leaven of the Pharisees is, is listening to, sitting under, the teaching of false teachers. The same can be said to us today, how important it is to be careful on what enters your ears and your heart and your mind. This is what Jesus wanted to have them comprehend. But it went deeper than this. He wanted to teach them about sanctification. <clears throat> Even though the 12 disciples had been standing there listening to Jesus' in, his, in, his encounter and confrontation with the religious leaders, their minds immediately went to the physical arena instead of the spiritual arena, as it should have. Demonstrated their spiritual blindness, their spiritual dullness. They revealed their spiritual immaturity, even though they had been walking with Jesus 18 months. So the questions Jesus asked them, starting in verse 17, he asked them seven or eight rapid-fire questions that probably were bouncing off every side of their head. But he, he intended these questions to be a mild rebuke to their spiritual blindness, their spiritual thick-headedness, to get their attention, to help them see the importance of spiritual growth. It's obvious that Jesus thought differently about the Twelve than he did about the religious leaders, but nevertheless, they were demonstrating spiritual ignorance and blindness that needed to be confronted and changed. 18 months with Jesus, and they're still asking these questions. Not only that, but they were asking questions about Jesus' ability to provide. They had seen him feed 5,000 and now 4,000, and they're asking these kind of questions. You got to wonder until you examine your own heart, right? How long have you been with Jesus? What's your understanding of his love and his goodness for you? Does it affect how you think about life? Does it affect your decisions? You've been with Jesus how long? We could ask each other, right? Jesus was teaching these 12 men that spiritual growth and sanctification will only happen if there is spiritual attentiveness. Listen, Sun Valley Church, Spiritual maturity will only happen if you are spiritually attentive. If you think that you're going to become like Jesus by sleep, putting a Bible under your pillow at night, you got another thing coming. Of all the important lessons that we learn in Scripture, remember spiritual maturity only comes with spiritual attentiveness. We naturally drift towards indifference. Jesus' questions communicated to them that he had concerns about their hardness of heart, not the Pharisees. He was concerned that they weren't getting it. How could their hearts be hard towards Jesus? Their hearts weren't hard towards Jesus. They loved him. They left everything to be with him. They followed, obeyed. They, They wanted more and more Jesus, and yet Jesus accuses them of hard-heartedness. What's going on here? Well, what's going on here in chapter 8 is what's going on here at Sun Valley Church in our lives every day. And their problem was familiarity. They had heard Jesus preach and teach and had witnessed so many of his spectacular miracles. They had heard Everything that Jesus said, they watched everything that Jesus had done, and yet Jesus was accusing them of callousness. Their problem was familiarity. This is the same problem that can undermine our spiritual growth, get in the way of our progress towards spiritual maturity. Familiarity. We can become indifferent, apathetic, even callous to spiritual things because we become overly familiar with spiritual things. You say, how does that work? I thought if we heard the word of God preached, we would become like Jesus. Friends, even though most of us have been converted by the Holy Spirit and have been given a new heart, we continue to struggle with the residual elements of our sin nature We remain unglorified humans who must continue to deal with the flesh and with the sin that comes with possessing flesh. The disciples had become so accustomed to Jesus by repeated exposure to his teaching and miracles that they soon ceased spiritual attentiveness. They ceased reflecting on and acting on what he was teaching their insensitivity and dullness grew with each unapplied sermon, each unreflected upon parable, and or each unprocessed miracle. They had just witnessed Jesus feed 4,000 people, and they're asking these dull-headed questions. How is that possible? Spiritual inattentiveness is how. How? We face the same danger here at Sun Valley Church in our day. We can sit through sermon after sermon, Sunday seminar after Sunday seminar, uh, sit small group after small group, and actually become more hard-hearted and more spiritually dull. Amazing, this thing called sin, isn't it? You might say to yourself, I thought I was, if I was just exposed to the truth, it would transform me. That's why I'm coming. I, I, faith comes by hearing, Pastor John. Well, this spiritual blindness that Mark writes about was resolved by Jesus' careful and loving confrontation. In Matthew's account, the disciples, it says, were finally able to see, were finally grasping what Jesus was saying. They finally began to understand at this point after 18 months of hearing him preach and not getting it. All Christians go through similar experiences as these 12. We, like his first disciples, have a hard time with our spiritual blindness and thick-headedness, at least I know I do. We need the Holy Spirit and God's people to shake us out of our spiritual apathy and spiritual inattentiveness. Faith does come from hearing the word. Spiritual growth does come from intake of the word, but heart engagement is critical. Don't think you can sit here week after week thinking about what you're gonna do this afternoon and expect spiritual maturity to happen. Heart engagement is on the table. Going through the motions as Christians without an engaged heart is spiritually dangerous. Lack of engagements, lack of spiritual engagement, becomes a hardening agent. We know a little bit about epoxy, at least some of us do. Epoxy has two ingredients, right? That's why it comes in two separate tubes in the package. When you buy epoxy, two separate tubes, one package. You have to mix those two ingredients before epoxy hardens, before it works. You have to have both, or it will never harden up. It'll never fix what you're trying to fix. Without both ingredients, epoxy is useless. If you don't believe me, go buy a a set of epoxy tubes at Home Depot and just use one on your next project, see what happens. You'll probably take it back, say, these things don't work. Well, if you just use one ingredient, like spiritual listening, Without spiritual tentatives, it never works. There has to be spiritual attentiveness. It requires two ingredients to be mixed together. Just like epoxy resins require both ingredients to interact, to actually function the way epoxy is designed to function, in our spiritual growth, in our transformation, in our sanctification, we must have both. Hearing the word and being attentive to it. Applying it. Processing it, thinking about it, which is why we encourage you regularly to go to small group where you can actually process the sermon. If you just sit here and hear the sermon, leave that this building, that door, you will never see the spiritual growth that you should. In fact, there's a danger of becoming more hardened towards the things of God. This is so true in our spiritual life. We need the Holy Spirit's inspired word and an active receptive heart. Both of which God gives. God gives these so that we will become like Jesus. But the active receptive heart is something that we must nurture. It is a gift from God that gets stale and cold if unused we are given the responsibility to strengthen and edify and guard our hearts. In Psalm 119, we see verse after verse that challenges our hearts to be attentive, to be intentional in our spiritual life, don't we? You remember that we studied that a while back, right? Psalm 119. Listen to the second verse in Psalm 119. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Not just the testimonies, but the seeking. That's the attentiveness I'm talking about. And then verse 32, I will run in the way of your commandments. I'll do this thing after you enlarge my heart. So God has given us a new heart. Now we have to run. Active participants, as passive attenders. Are you an active participant at Sun Valley Church? I mean, spiritually active. I don't mean showing up at work days or working in the nursery. That's great and you should be doing that. But are you spiritually active? Are you tuned in? Are you attentive? Are you asking God, praying that, that He will work through what is taught and preached to affect your heart, to help you understand who God is, et cetera? Jesus gives an example of this process in verses 14. Well, no, verses uh, 22 through 26. He heals this blind man. This also seems out of place if you're just reading through the Gospel of Mark. You're going, what, what is Mark? He, he's certainly ADD. I mean, feeding 5,000, arguing Pharisees, discussions about not having enough bread, and then all of a sudden a blind guy. Well... <laughs> Jesus has a point to all this madness. The the story goes like this, and they came to Bethsaida, so they left the Decapolis, the region that he fed 4,000, and they showed up to Bethsaida, and some people brought him a blind man, and they begged him to touch him. He took the blind man, led him out of the village, spit on his eyes, laid hands on him, and asked him, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And Jesus laid his hands on him again, and he opened his eyes, and he was restored. He could see everything clearly. Amazing story, except it takes Jesus two, two tries. I thought he did all things well. You don't need two tries if you do all things well. If you do all things well and, and you're a baseball player, you hit a home run every time. You don't need, like, however many at-bats to get 15 home runs a year. Especially Jesus. What do you mean it takes him two tries to heal a guy? Well, maybe he had an objective here. There's that possibility. Listen to me explain the conversation. This conversation that Jesus had with the blind man indicates this man was not born blind. Why? He saw trees and men. He wouldn't know what trees and men look like if he hadn't seen them before. He was not blind from birth. He had sight at one point. Just like when we're converted, we have spiritual sight at that point in life. His vision was still fuzzy. Guess what? Our vision is still fuzzy. This interaction is recorded so we don't miss the point. This man at one point could in fact see. Just like... When we have a new spiritual heart at our conversion, we can see his eyes and our hearts at one point worked, but they both can become dull and not work right. We need a Savior to occasionally step in and maybe persistently step in and touch us once again. This healing story could have been concerning to us if we wouldn't dig just below the surface. Jesus doesn't fail ever. We we could dwell on this story for some time, I think, and learn a lot. And I'd like to encourage you to meditate on the story when you get a chance. But let me just end with these observations. Jesus' healing is the way that the Holy Spirit sometimes works in our conversion. Some of us came to Christ like that, immediately others it took months, if not years, of hearing the repeated message of Christ. It takes time and patient work of God on our behalf to accomplish his purposes, even in conversion. The story was inserted by Mark at this place in his book to teach his readers, us, about how we learn spiritually, even if it's slow. Mark wants you to know how it is that we learn spiritually. It takes time. It takes repetition. If you had been that blind man, you may have thought to yourself, oh, come on, just heal me already. Why can't I be like the Apostle Paul right when I pray this prayer, right when I come to Christ by faith? Just heal me. How hard is it, Jesus? Just make me mature. This blind man could have chafed under Jesus' decision to heal him with two touches instead of one. We many times want to chafe under God's process in our own sanctification. Why is it taking so long already, God? I mean, I've been following Jesus for 15, 20, 30 years, and I'm still struggling with this. Heal me already. Right? Well, just like this blind man and the 4,000 gen- Gentiles that Jesus just fed, he loves us and is taking us through a process to make us satisfied, joyful, and whole. It requires this process. Even though our sanctification at time is indeed painfully slow, it will Happen. Jesus does all things well. Jesus guarantees our sanctification. He who began a good work in you will what? Complete it. You will one day be whole, able to see clearly. This truth about the process of our sanctification will bring joy contentment and even satisfaction to your heart. Jesus knows what he's doing in your life. It may take time, we may get frustrated, but he does all things well. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful? Let's pray. Jesus, we Thank you now for this great reminder that you taught your disciples and now have taught us of your loving and kind process in transforming our hearts into Christ likeness. Even though we would desire to be um, much more faithful, much more committed, uh, we would desire that we would be more like Christ than we currently are the story teaches us to, to come to you and rest, to come to you knowing and trusting and believing that, that you, in fact, are about your business in our hearts, that you are transforming us day by day, minute by minute, even if it's imperceptible. Oh, well, God, give us the grace to rest in you, We are weary and heavy laden, even sometimes, of our sanctification process. But we run to you again for rest, knowing that you do all things well. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, our Savior. Amen.